Hello everyone and welcome to this lesson four in our course on immigration and the Nordic welfare state. So in this lesson we turn to immigrant integration and theories of immigrant integration. This is the part in the course where we start discussing immigrant integration uh, and turn away from discussing uh, immigration. So instead of uh, discussing and reading on the factors which influence whether people migrate and where they migrate to, now we'll start uh, in discussing and reading about what affects the uh, integration processes uh, of immigrants when they have arrived in a new country. Before we uh, start, uh, before I start my talk um, or this lecture, I'll just uh, want to uh, briefly explain the new structure that I will implement for the lessons. So um, I found that making two podcasts, one before, one after class, was simply too time-consuming. So uh, instead, I've decided to do it a bit differently. So still before class, I will uh, uh, record a lecture. I will record it both as a video uh, and in audio format, and the video uh, will include slides. So I know that some of you um, wanted or would like to have slides. So I think I thought I would uh, provide that. Uh, but for those of you who prefer to listen to the podcast or listen to uh, to me talking um, instead of uh, also having slides or perhaps uh, using both formats in different uh, at different times, uh, you you can still do that. So uh, so you before class you you listen to this uh, recording of the lecture, uh, or you see it uh, on Moodle as a video, and then during class hours we, uh, you will spend the first forty five minutes doing a group exercise in your private group channels on Microsoft Teams, um, and then. Afterwards, in the kind of the second part of uh, of class, we'll meet in the general Teams channel, me and all of you, uh, and use the first thirty minutes to discuss the group exercise. Um, I I will um, I would like to hear from one or two of the groups what you discussed, uh, and I will give some feedback on your discussion or start a discussion with you uh, about the kind of things that you thought about and what it makes me think about when you present it. Um, and after we've together discussed the exercise uh, and all the questions that pops up in, in the course of that, uh, after that, we'll use the last 15 minutes to kind of have an open discussion um, where you can ask any questions you might have about the syllabus, what we talked about or what you talked about in your groups during the day or anything else that you thought about when uh, watching or listening to the lecture or reading the syllabus. So we'll, uh, we'll try that structure out. I think it will, um, it, it will work better for me at least. And I hope it will also um, 
work for you as well. Okay, but let's turn to uh, today's lecture. <clears throat> so there are kind of uh, there are six things on the agenda. First off, uh, I'll give you some feedback on the exercise from lesson one. So this is the feedback that I actually promised you uh, way earlier um, after you had the lesson one. And I'm sorry that you get it so late, but uh, you'll get it now. Uh, and then when I've um, given you the feedback, we'll turn to uh, talking about the theme for today's lesson and the syllabus that you've read. We'll start out. Uh, with talking a bit about the concept of integration and the study of integration policies and how we might use comparison as a tool in our study of integration and integration policies. This part of the talk is mainly based on the text uh, by Pennings and Garcia Mascarenas, if I pronounce that correctly. And afterwards, we'll turn to uh, the two other texts. First, we'll talk a bit about acculturation theory which uh, is presented in the text by Barry. And then afterwards, we'll talk about comparative integration context theory, which is presented in the text by Kohl and Schneider. So these theories, they, uh, they overlap to some extent. They're interested in, in some of the same things, um, but not totally. The first theory, acculturation theory, is from uh, social psychological literature while Kuhl and Schneider uh, are sociologists. Um, so you can think about that as more of a sociological uh, theory of integration. And then um, in the end, I'll give a brief summary uh, and introduce the group exercise that you'll do um, during the first 45 minutes of, the, of class on Friday. But let me start with uh, giving you a bit a bit of feedback uh, on the exercise from lesson one. So there were three questions um, in the exercise. The first were, uh, were uh, the first was to what extent did the integration policies of Denmark, Sweden, and Norway converge because of the refugee crisis? The second question was what might explain convergence and persistent differences? Describe the theoretical mechanisms. And the third question was compare the theoretical explanations and discuss how they relate to the core traits of the welfare state. So all groups uh, handed in um, handed in a, an, a written assignment, which is great, and you all had some uh, good uh, thoughts and considerations. Um, now I'll provide you with uh, some of the thoughts that I had also reading through your answers. So the first question, to what extent did the integration policies of Denmark, Sweden and Norway converge because of the refugee crisis? In the text by Hernes, uh, she uh, argues uh, that in fact there were not uh, convergence to a significant degree. All countries introduced more restrictive policies as part of the refugee crisis. Uh, to the extent that the kind of relative difference between the three the three countries um, persisted. So compared to each other, um, they they were equally um, the the difference in restrictiveness between the three countries were the same before and after the refugee crisis. 
She argues, though, that there were perhaps some convergence in terms of the policy goals, where Sweden and Norway turned a bit more to Denmark, so to speak. But um, but count the main strong difference that there that there were before the refugee crisis between Denmark and Sweden, in particular, also exists today, now after the refugee crisis. So what might explain convergence and persistent differences? And here we are mainly talking about persistent differences between Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. Um, so different explanations can kind of be emphasized here. I'd like to kind of emphasize three kind of common explanations. So in terms of convergence, so why the three countries might do things um, similarly when it comes to immigrant integration, kind of the main explanation that people uh, point to uh, is the welfare state itself. So the welfare state is uh, expensive. We have um, high benefits and very generous programs that we pay through taxation and through high degrees of taxation and that um, that is um, uh, free for everyone to kind of access and use. So education, healthcare, for example. Uh, and this is uh, expensive. Um, also, we have high wages um, in a labor market, which um, at the same time as the, our model requires that we have a high, um, high degree of um, employment. So the kind of these characteristics of the welfare state uh, makes immigration uh, a, a possible problem, not necessarily a problem, but it might become a problem uh, to the extent that immigrants make more use of the services of the uh, the welfare state and make and, and the unemployment benefits and so on. So it's kind of a, a, a functionalist explanation in the sense that the welfare state finances can't really handle too large an influx of immigrants uh, with little education and perhaps who have a hard time uh, learning a new language. It would kind of be a drain on the finances on the on the state coffers. And since all three countries have these very comprehensive welfare states, it is kind of a, a fundamental similarity that might drive them towards similar policies when responding to immigration. But of course, we see quite strong differences between the three countries, particularly Denmark and Sweden. So um, at least that explanation have a large um, um, yeah, what's the right word? I'm, I'm looking for it's it, it it only takes us so far so to speak what we really need to explain are not uh, similarities but actually differences and it's not an explanation of differences to understand uh, why the three countries differ um, the literature literature often talk about path dependency in the sense that the three countries are characterized by different kind of philosophies of integration. You might also talk about different frames. Um, if you think about what you read today uh, for the lesson four, 
uh, and the text by Penningson Garcia Marcelenas, where they talk about frames. That is kind of the same idea here that the three countries are argued to have quite different uh, philosophies of integration, quite different on un different understandings um, of what the nation is and what social cohesion um, requires in terms of cultural homogeneity. So the argument is that the Danish politics, but also the Danish society in general, is to a large extent dominated by an idea that um, the welfare state is based on a large degree of sameness in the population, a large degree of ethnocultural homogeneity. And therefore, we need to have immigrants assimilate uh, so they can become culturally like the majority in order to foster solidarity between citizens and willingness to pay high taxes so that everyone has access to, uh, to good services and high benefits. So that uh, idea, uh, the argument is that that idea does not um, have a dominant position in Swedish society or Swedish politics. Swedish politics is much, much less concerned with um, national identity or cultural homogeneity as kind of the foundation of a comprehensive welfare state. Um, Swedish uh, politicians seem to subscribe to the notion that if you just have a well-functioning welfare state uh, where people see that the institutions are not corrupt and they adjust and they function efficiently, that in itself is enough to uh, create the willingness of citizens to pay high taxes um, um, in order to institutionalize a high degree of equality. So if you have these two very kind of different philosophies of integration dominating these societies, the argument is that they kind of push policies in different directions. The Danish policies will be pushed uh, in, in the direction of um, requiring assimilation in order to access rights and benefits, whereas Swede the Swedish ideology will push policies in the direction of um, cultural accommodation, of uh, creating the conditions for immigrants to have a strong sense of uh, belonging to society without feeling that they need to give up their the, the cultural background uh, and then and if if they just get the same rights as others that they feel that they're treated equally as other citizens they will come to see that the society is just the institutions are just and they function and that in itself will create a high degree of solidarity among immigrants and a high degree of identity with the Swedish society. Um, and um, that will make it, uh, make it work. So that is kind of um, another explanation, path dependency um, based on different philosophies of what makes society function, what makes a comprehensive welfare state function. And as all, always, I almost said, Norway is kind of placed in between, kind of vacillating between Denmark and Sweden in terms of what their philosophy is, kind of incorporating elements from both Denmark uh, and Sweden. 
A third explanation that um, you, we could have uh, or you could have uh, talked about is the party politics. So one argument is that um, the reason why we have much more restrictive policies in Denmark is that we've had a much more strong far-right party in Denmark, the Danish People's Party, um, and that the major center-right parties um, have been able to form a government coalition solely based on the support of a far-right party. Meaning that when they then had govern, uh, when, when you have a, a center-right government, that the, um, there are kind of no coalitional partners preventing um, them from implementing restrictive policies. So the argument is that that was has not been the case or and still isn't the case in Norway and Sweden. Here, the the major center-right party, the uh, conservatives in Sweden um, and Norway, that they still need to work together with center parties, which have a much more um, liberal approach to immigration and integration. Uh, they still need to cooperate with them in order to form uh, viable coalitions, um, government coalitions. And as long as they need to work together with with these uh, center parties, uh, that creates kind of a strong barrier for uh, for implementing very restrictive policies. Because if they try to do so, these center parties would object and would possibly um, pull back their support for the government, thereby tumbling the government. So these were kind of some explanations of uh, convergence and persistent differences. Uh, and I provided, tried to provide some kind of um, details about the theoretical mechanism. So what is the mechanisms that makes, makes those explanations work, so to speak. The last question were compare the theoretical explanations and uh, discuss how they relate to the core traits of the welfare state. So here, um, I would kind of like to make provide you kind of the two points here. So, um, as I've already said, the comprehensive welfare states are expensive. The high benefits, uh, everyone is entitled to public services, um, and you have kind of educational, healthcare, and other services which are provided free for all through high degrees of taxation. Um, so the, the kind of convergence explanation relates directly to the, the welfare state and how it is financed. And that you need high degrees of employment in order to keep up the finances, uh, or have the economy to finance uh, the welfare state um, and high degree of immigration uh, of kind of low-skilled migrants, uh, migrants who, even if they are high-skilled, might still uh, need some time in order to uh, integrate into the labor market. It uh, it might become a problem for the economy uh, needed to sustain the welfare state. So that's kind of how that that's how that explanation relates to kind of the core traits of the welfare state. So the, the path dependency explanation also relate to what we could call some of the core traits of uh, the welfare state. Um, so the idea here is that 
the national philosophies of integration that I talked about, they um, incorporate kind of different ideas about what creates the kind of necessary ethos uh, to make the welfare state function. So in order to make the welfare state uh, function, we need uh, citizens that show a high degree of solidarity uh, and who work when they can. So um, the text by Brockman and Haglund talked about uh, a necessary uh, work ethic and distribution ethic and contribution, e contribution ethic. Um, and the argument is that in order for that ethic to kind of um, instill itself in the population, in order for the population to kind of have that ethic. In Denmark, the argument is that it is that ethic is based on a high degree of cultural sameness, cultural homogeneity, that we look, feel that we are similar to a high degree, uh, so we can identify with each, with the, each other more strongly. And that is kind of the foundation of having this necessary ethos. And then the argument is in Sweden that, well, that is not necessary for having this strong ethos of uh, solidarity and a strong work ethic. Again, what is just needed to have this ethos kind of created and recreated in the population over time is just that you have a just society with well-functioning institutions uh, and with a high degree of equality. When people see that the welfare state works and that it's good and that it's fair and that it's just, then they will, that in itself will instill in them a sense of solidarity and prow, uh, pride um, um, that is a necessary kind of, uh, that is kind of the foundation for, for the welfare state. Okay, so uh, I hope you all found that uh, some um, a good feedback uh, for for the exercise uh, questions. Um, at least that's what you get. So now I will turn to uh, talking about today's lecture, lesson four, or the lecture four uh, on theories of immigrant integration. And um, as I said, I will start out with talking a bit about the concept of integration. So you have uh, the text by Pinnings and Ga Gases Masarenas. I, I know I'm not pronouncing that last name correctly. Um, they um, say, or at least uh, they argue that the best way of defining integration is kind of vaguely as the process of becoming an accepted part of society. They say that kind of this uh, definition of integration is uh, non-normative, so it doesn't kind of define a decide end goal. It um, emphasizes that integration is a process. Um, and and then it doesn't really say, say uh, much more, not what kind of process it is, just that the end point of an integration process, if it's successful, is that the person or the group of people who uh, were trying or to be integrated are accepted 
as a part of society. So it's a it's a good starting point uh, to think about integration. This definition, uh, which is it's very simple, it's vague, it opens up for a lot of questions uh, and discussion. What they emphasize in the text um, is that uh, integration is a long-term process. So it's something that takes time. Uh, and they talk about the second generation actually being a kind of litmus test of whether uh, integration is successful uh, in a country because the second generation is the ones who were actually born in the society to immigrant parents and who have lived their whole life um, in the society in question. Uh, so they, if integration works, they ought to have become an accepted part of society. This uh, integration, it is a, a process. And the foundation of that process is the interaction between immigrants and the receiving society. That is what determines the outcomes of the integration process. So it's not just a question of um, what immigrants bring with them from their home countries in terms of uh, education and uh, work experience and culture. It's, it's more a question of how uh, that background interacts with what they meet in the receiving society and how the receiving society chooses to meet immigrants. In and that might be in terms of um, how they support them, um, how their institutions accommodates, uh, accommodates immigrants, um, and how the majority population tend to think of them and meet them in their everyday lives uh, in perhaps very open or more closed ways. But what is uh, important to notice in um, is that it's a very unequal relationship. So you have a majority society which have a lot of power and you have immigrants coming to country and they do not have a lot of power in terms of um, the opportunities that they have um, and the support they will get. Of course, they have some, uh, they have a will and they can, of course, try to make a great effort to become integrated, but the institutions to support the people of the receiving society will determine the extent to which uh, the effort that immigrants put into becoming integrated will actually also um, result in, in good integration outcomes. So there are um, different dimensions of integration, which is, uh, is an uh, important point that the text makes. So it's important not to think about integration as this uh, one one thing that can be measured in, in one way, if that makes sense to you. Um, dim integration happens within a lot of different uh, areas of society and it might happen in different ways in different areas. So. The text distinguishes between kind of three dimensions dimensions uh, of integration, and you might distinguish between more than that. But at least this is kind of a, a starting point uh, in order to kind of make the argument that integration 
uh, can look differently for the same person in different areas of society. So the kind of the three main dimensions that uh, we can kind of distinguish uh, are the, the legal political dimension, socioeconomic dimension, and a cultural uh, religious uh, dimension. So the uh, the legal political dimension refers to uh, kind of the the rights um, that immigrants have access to and how they can access rights and in the end um, have kind of the same rights as people who are citizens and born in the country. This is a very much a question a question of um, getting access to citizenship in the end. So if if you, as an immigrant, become a citizen, are granted citizenship through naturalization, then you have all the same rights as everyone else in society. Um, there's also a question here in the legal political dimension about uh, political participation and representation. So this is a question about um, the extent to which immigrants are represented in political bodies, so in, um, in municipalities, I can't say that, uh, the municipalities, the councils of the municipalities, um, the parliament, and other uh, bodies who have um, political power, uh, to which extent are immigrants represented there? Um, or is is it perhaps if you have if it's very difficult to become a citizen in a country, it might uh, end up having large parts of the populations who are immigrants who do not have citizenship and therefore have no uh, cannot vote in national elections, cannot run for office or run for parliament, uh, and therefore you you end up with them uh, not being represented in parliament or 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 other um, political bodies. Okay, so that's one dimension, the legal political dimension. Another dimension is kind of the socioeconomic dimension, uh, and that is um, what we often think about when we think about integration. We think about uh, whether they have employment, whether they uh, get good education, or at least uh, become educated to similar levels as other groups in society. Um, where they reside, so where they live, for example, do they live in certain areas, kind of do immigrants concentrate in certain areas, certain areas or not. So kind of these, um, these uh, questions are about kind of the socioeconomic integration of, of immigrants. And you might very well, very well have a situation where uh, immigrants have a hard time getting access to, let's say, permanent residence and citizenship, and then getting access to equal rights. But at the same time, they are able to access jobs and find employment uh, and make use of the educational system. So you have a high degree of socioeconomic integration, but a low degree of legal political integration. The third dimension uh, is the cultural religious dimension uh, and that kind of pertains to um, the kind of the uh, the practices of immigrants um, the kind of cultural kind of norms and practices of immigrants and the receiving society as well and and how they kind of uh, react to each other 
to the kind of difference and diversity that, that is introduced. So to what extent does the society uh, accept and accommodate the new cultural diversity uh, that immigrants bring? And what extent do it kind of uh, react in opposition to it? So you might uh, have, um, for example, um, a society that like, perhaps like the Danish one, where at least a lot of people think that uh, immigrants should adopt the norms and kind of dominant norms and values. Uh, and if that is kind of the expectation, um, you you have um, a low degree of integration if if that expectation does not change and and immigrants uh, do not want to meet that expectation then you have kind of some kind of a conflict in terms of in the integration expectations of the majority and the integration uh, the kind of integration that immigrants are willing to put effort into So um, Pennings and um, yeah, what were what's her name again? Gases Maslarenas argue that it's important to ha uh, to have this kind of disaggregated approach, where you uh, look at the different dimensions of integration separately um, and analyze them separately, because you might have um, in in certain societies for particular groups. This is a situation that they are very highly integrated along one dimension, but not along uh, the other dimension. And it's, it's also important, uh, they argue, that you think about integration as not as a linear process or what, you also, what some call kind of straight line integration. Instead, integration, uh, you need to think about it as a non-linear process that might... Uh, go forward and go back and take different turns uh, and it will look very differently for different immigrants and perhaps also for different immigrant groups. Often, when we th also think about immigration with, or integration, we think about it in terms of uh, individuals. So uh, to, which, to what extent do immigrants as, uh, as just a whole uh, group of individuals get jobs, um, learn the language, become citizens, uh, take residence uh, outside so-called ghettos, Stuff like that, that's kind of what we used to think about when we think about uh, integration. We think about it mostly kind of on the individual level. Um, but there are also kind of other levels of integration or kind of other levels of analysis that we might think about it. We uh, think about integration in terms of, so we can think about it besides an individual level, we can think about it on a group level on an organizational level and also uh, on an institutional level. So on a group level, it's a question of the extent to which uh, minority and majority groups uh, change their kind of cultural practices and norms, mindsets and perceptions in, in order to get to a place where they become more accepting of each other.
on an organizational level, it's uh, it's a question of the extent to which organizations uh, change and adapt in order to be more accommodating of uh, cultural differences. Um, so, for example, do schools change the way they teach in order to make the more make kind of uh, minority students feel more at home at school? Um, do healthcare providers change the way they provide healthcare um, in order to make their services more inclusive of people from different cultural backgrounds? These could be kind of the um, uh, integration questions that arise at an organizational uh, level. And then, of course, you can have uh, integration at an institutional uh, level. Uh, and that is the extent to which kind of policies and the way we discuss integration in the public uh, adapt itself in order to make it more accommodating and more accepting of uh, cultural differences. So when we ask these questions about integration and seek answers to them, we have to kind of think about, well, what kind of question of integration is this? At what level are we talking? What level of analysis are we talking about here? Is it, are we talking about how individuals uh, integrate and the process of integration they experience? Are we talking about groups, organizations, uh, or institutions? When you read the literature, this is a bit of a side note, but when you read the literature, you should also um, be aware that there are a lot of uh, different concepts that are used kind of in to some extent interchangeably, but also um, interchangeably to integration, but also just as overlapping concepts, concepts that have some uh, degree of similarity to the concept of integration. And some of those concepts are acculturation, adaptation, assimilation, accommodation, incorporation, and inclusion. Um, so I won't go, basically, some people use them to some extent interchangeably, um, but it also has to do with kind of the literature that, that you're reading. So when people talk about acculturation, adaptation, and assimilation, it's mostly kind of the uh, psychological literature that is focused on how individuals and groups change um, and people talk about accommodation, incorporation, and inclusion are often people who are interested in how um, the policy differences between countries and how these policies and di and discourses affect immigrants uh, and majorities. Integration is also a, a contested concept. So there are people who kind of criticize whether we should use a concept uh, or not. So uh, Pennings and uh, Casa Marcelinas have tried to kind of define the concept in a way that uh, is um, non-normative. Um, so it doesn't really uh, incorporate any specific expectations in terms of what integration is and what it should be and what it isn't, but try to kind of define it in a very kind of neutral way. Um, but that's 
obviously not how integration is used in political debates and political um, uh, policy documents. When politicians use it and decision makers use it, they they imbue it with certain meaning and certain uh, normative meaning. Um, and critics argue that for that reason, because it's such a popular concept uh, with policymakers, that we shouldn't also use it um, um, in our research. Uh, instead, we should try to find other terms to use uh, so we don't um, kind of ha use a term that for many people uh, kind of connects to certain normative ideas. And what those normative ideas are, uh, at least what critics say is that people often uh, use the term integration uh, assuming that immigrants must adapt to majority norms in order to be accepted uh, and not that the majority needs to change as well or that immigrants um, uh, perhaps um, or that this adaptation of immigrants uh, can kind of uh, coexist with them maintaining uh, their cultural heritage. So critics also say that um, the way many people use the term, they kind of assume that integration is this linear path uh, and that majority culture remains unchanged. And thirdly, also, it seems to be used with the assumption that the nation uh, is kind of this very homogeneous and cohesive social environment. So it kind of neglects that in society we are all very different people and um, and there are all different kind of conflicts and differences of opinion. So it's not this extremely harmonious uh, social environment that immigrants somehow come and disrupt or need to adapt to. There are already a lot of conflicts and differences in society before immigration. So uh, the last thing here uh, I want to um, to say before um, turning to kind of the next uh, topic um, is that. Um, we need to be aware and remind ourselves that, uh, as Pennings and, and Gases Marcelenas say, that the question is not only what immigrants do, with whom the, uh, do they interact and how do they, do they identify themselves, but as much whether they are accepted and how they are positioned in each of our three dimensions. So it's not just a question of what immigrants do the effort they put in to, to adapt and become part of a new society, but it's much it's a question of interaction. So it's also a question of whether they are accepted. Um, and how they their integration process um, works within different dimensions of society. Okay, so that was uh, the first part about the concept of integration. So now I'm going to turn to say a bit about uh, the study of integration policies. So 
here talking about the concept of integration, uh, I talked mostly in terms of um, this field being the study of the integration process of how immigrants and descendants um, integrate and change and how the majority society and the majority population change uh, in, in reaction to uh, immigration and reaction in reaction to the meeting between um, cross-cultural differences. But another area, another study uh, within uh, immigrant integration is the study of integration policies. Of course, we might study policies in terms of their, uh, in terms of their effect uh, on immigrant integration. So they're the kind of the two uh, areas uh, overlap. But we might also study uh, integration policies in terms of why certain policies uh, are chosen over others in, uh, in certain national contexts. So why is it that Denmark has chosen very different policies uh, than Sweden in many areas uh, of immigrant integration policy? And uh, we've already talked a bit, already uh, talked a bit about the differences in Denmark and Sweden in terms of national philosophies integration in the feedback I gave on exercise one. But that is at least one uh, explanation of why certain policies are chosen uh, over others. It's a question about frames, as the Pennings and Gases Masarenas term it. What I also talk about, or kind of term national philosophies integration. So that has to do with. Um, the kind of how uh, phenomena are defined as problematic, what is thought of as problematic in terms of uh, the meeting between immigrants and majorities uh, and institutions, what causes Im uh, integration problems and successes, what is the desired outcome of the integration process, what are possible and legitimate solutions, policies they can implement, and what uh, groups are most important to target with the, the policies so which groups are thought of as more problematic perhaps than other groups uh, and therefore become the target of, uh, of policies. So these um, different ideas, different frames might dominate uh, different uh, national public debates about immigrant integration policy um, and Therefore, uh, different countries will end up adopting uh, different policies. Uh, another uh, uh, kind of explanation has to do with party politics. So I also talked a bit about that uh, in the feedback. So it might have to do with the strength of far-right parties, the ideology of the government, coalitional politics, and what, uh, what the voters prefer. Another uh, question, so so these explanations have to do with so which policies are chosen, which policies do societies end up choosing? Another question is uh, how are policies implemented? So when um, majority in parliament decide to adopt a particular policy, uh, it has to be implemented. And there is possibly a very large gap between uh, the intentions behind the policy and what is actually being done at kind of the street level when um, social workers or whoever have to kind of implement 
the policy decided upon. So the question of who implements it, who coordinates uh, the policy measures, what level of discretion do they have, uh, how much are they controlled um, from higher up, um, affects or might affect at least um, how policies are implemented and whether policies were, who where the intentions were perhaps to create more restrictive environment in terms of perhaps accessing certain services might end up in the end not changing a lot um, when they kind of gone through the bureaucracy towards being implemented by social workers uh, in a municipality somewhere in the country. Uh, and this is also something that Kuhl and Snyder um, have observed in their um, research is that there's a large difference between kind of between the rhetoric, the political rhetoric, and the kind of the pragma pragmatic ways in which um, state agencies and social workers and street level bureaucrats actually end up implementing implementing the policies and and how they end up kind of dealing with uh, immigrants and the children. So uh, in this course, um, our main focus is uh, not on kind of the study of integration policies. Our main focus is on uh, the study of immigrant integration processes, processes um, and also the effect of policies on immigrant integration. We could have also included, so they could, of course could have been very interesting to also uh, talk about and read about um, integration policies and the politics of it and the implementation of policies. Um, but that would require a larger course. So we have to make certain choices. And this was uh, one choice. Before uh, turning to kind of uh, the other texts about acculturation theory and the comparative integration context theory, uh, I want to say something about a comparison as a tool, which is also something that um, Pennings and Gases Mazarenas um, uh, talk about in their text as an important tool to understand why uh, outcomes vary. So um, we will often see that um, different countries vary in how successful they are uh, in integrating um, uh, immigrants uh, that, or at least that the integration processes turn out very differently in different countries. Perhaps they might turn out very differently for different groups within the same country, or this, the same groups turn out very differently in different countries. Uh, we might find that comparing uh, schools, we find that certain schools produce uh, better integration outcomes than other schools. Um, again, the idea is here that when we compare, when we compare immigrants and immigrant groups within a similar or different contexts, uh, we are uh, able to say something more about and, and come up with a better understanding of uh, why outcomes vary and outcomes do vary. So 
That is a given. We know that there is a lot of variation. In order to understand that variation, we often compare or we need to compare. And kind of the possible, some possible parameters of comparison uh, is uh, between the immigrant groups. So we might compare uh, Somali immigrants with Syrian immigrants, or perhaps then uh, again with uh, Japanese, American immigrants, uh, to try and understand uh, why uh, groups uh, vary. We might also um, compare different policy areas to try and understand uh, why certain immigrant groups perhaps succeed within uh, one area, uh, one uh, dimension of integration, but not within another. Uh, we, we might um, compare organizations. So as I, I just uh, gave the example before with schools, so different schools might do things differently and have different outcomes. And we might use that to try and understand uh, why outcomes vary, whether the school context uh, makes a difference. There's the context in the city or the municipality. So, of course, cities and municipalities might also do things differently, uh, try out different policy measures, try out different programs, uh, and we can try to leverage those differences to try and understand also why outcomes vary. And, of course, countries vary as well, as we've uh, talked about. So um, that's also what we do in this course. So we have Denmark, Sweden, Norway as kind of our main uh, countries of comparison. And why the reason why we compare, particularly those three countries, why they're very interesting to compare is uh, because they're so different when it comes to immigrant integration, but still so similar in so many other areas of society. Um, and that makes them very interesting to compare in order to understand why outcomes vary. The text by Krohn and Snyder, though, they try to um, make us aware that there might also be some uh, problems uh, when we choose the, the wrong way to compare. So um, I'm going to read here a, a quote uh, from their text where they say, taking the institutional arrangements of a country for granted or as given can seriously affect the way we perceive problems of participation and belonging among the second generation. Comparing different ethnic groups in the same local or national contexts automatically sets the focus on the immigrant groups themselves. Why do some underperform compared to the native group but others do not? The seemingly most logical explanation at hand then is culture and class. So there's a very common approach to compare different ethnic groups within the same context, arguing then that, well, we hold the context a constant. So when we see uh, differences between the ethnic groups, then it must have something to do with those ethnic groups and not the context. Um, but if we actually then try to compare with other national contexts, we might see, for example, that the, the, the group that kind of underperformed in one context now overperforms in another context. And then we might try to start thinking, well, okay, so 
we did see there were differences between ethnic groups within the first and national context. And uh, we originally thought that, well, this might have something to do with those the difference between those ethnic groups. But now looking at another national context, we see we don't see a similar pattern. We see a very different pattern in terms of how these ethnic groups perform. And that would make us question our, um, our first conclusion about these ethnic groups. So what they argue then is just it's important to keep these things in mind when we conclude something um, based on certain um, the our data, we have to know the limitations of a data. And they use the example uh, with the educational achievement of second generation Turks, which vary a lot uh, across different countries. Pointing to that the national institutions seem to matter a lot. All right. I'll turn now to uh, talking a bit about um, the text by uh, uh, Barry about acculturation theory. And Barry, he's a social psychologist, a very famous one, at least within this uh, within uh, the area of acculturation. <clears throat> um, he argues that uh, or defines acculturation as the dual process of a cultural and psychological change that takes place as a result of contact between two or more cultural groups and their individual members. And this uh, change uh, might happen at um, the institutional level, the group level uh, and the individual level. So it might uh, involve changes at level of uh, policy and the group level, we talk about the cultural norms and practices. And at the individual level, it's about um, the behavior, identity, and well-being. So as there are contact arises between two or more cultural groups, changes are likely to occur. And they can occur in different levels and um, on, on different uh, variables or parameters. This change is not necessarily a positive change um, or a change in the direction of groups becoming more similar. You might also have a very reactive change where some groups reject the influence of another group. And of course, individuals and groups may uh, react in very different ways, as we already talked about. So we have these interactions between um, different cultural groups, we might produce a change where that is kind of positive in the sense of mutual adaptation, that they become to become more accepting of each other's differences, while also uh, adapting a bit, um, adapting, adapting to some extent, so they also become more similar. So, uh, in a sense. But that might be one product of these interactions, but you might also produce conflict and stress because um, they're not willing to change perhaps, or the expectations from one group are perceived as unfair or um, unrealistic or some, something like that. And that might produce conflict, it might produce stress. 
And when we talk about stress and psychology, we're talking about uncertainty and anxiety, depression, loneliness, and these kind of more psychological measures. So um, in the, the text by Barry, he introduces kind of this uh, a general framework for understanding uh, acculturation. And, and he um, summarizes this framework in his, the figure two and the figure three in the text. Um, so it's basically in figure two, you basically see uh, a kind of description of the process of acculturation. So you have a culture A and a culture B who come into contact. That leads to cultural changes in culture A and culture B. Um, changes in terms of kind of the the norms and practices that dominate the two cultures. So that is kind of changes that happens at the group level or the cultural level. But the contact between cultures might also lead or will uh, inevitably lead to some changes at the individual level, what Barry terms the also the psychological level. So you might first have some degree of psychological acculturation, acculturation, um, where you see uh, changes in behavior, in the behavior of individuals in cultures uh, A and B, but also um, possibly uh, acculturative stress as people try to adapt their behaviors. Um, Barry, he kind of distinguishes between kind of three uh, sub-processes of, um, of behavioral shifts in terms of cultural shedding, cultural learning, and a cultural conflict. So uh, cultural shedding and the cultural learning kind of involves um, uh, the loss and replacement of uh, behaviors um, in order to kind of allow the individual to kind of better fit in uh, with society. Um, while uh, the, the third process, cultural conflict, uh, is something that uh, instead can lead to acculturative uh, stress. That is when people do not want to change behaviors in order to, to better fit in with society, or perhaps they, and they might have good reasons not wanting to perhaps society have too high expectations or unfair expectations. But still, it might lead to conflict and might lead to acculturative stress. So acculturative stress is something that happens when individuals uh, face problems from intercultural contact that they cannot uh, quickly deal with or simply deal with. When it's not easy for them to, to change who they are in order to kind of better fit in, uh, it creates acculturative stress. Or if they really want to, uh, to fit in, um, and know what they need to do in order to fit in, but they find it very difficult, very hard to change uh, their behaviors, change the norms, how they think and how they react. That also may create 
acculturative stress might make the integration process or the acculturation process stressful, something that is difficult. And the uh, behavioral shifts and the acculturative stress that um, the individuals experience uh, may affect, uh, in the end, the psychological adaptation and the sociocultural adaptation of individuals. And with a psychological adaptation, we mean kind of their well-being, basically. So the extent to which they feel good about themselves um, as individuals in this new society. And sociocultural adaptation refers to how um, acculturating individuals are kind of able to manage their daily lives uh, in their new cultural context, or at least in the cultural context of the majority. So this is kind of a basic uh, model of uh, acculturation, a basic framework to kind of try to help us understand the basic processes and basic uh, concepts involved in the psychological and sociocultural adaptation of individuals. Figure three kind of uh, complements figure two. So in figure three, um, kind of uh, summarizes the distinction Barry has between the integration strategies of individuals and the integration strategies of society. So um, as individuals, as immigrants come into contact with uh, the majority culture and the institutions and um, other elements of the, the new society, they might uh, they might uh, choose more or less um, deliberately uh, a certain integration strategy. So they will and and very distinguish between four different kind of main integration strategies that, that immigrants choose among. And they're defined along two dimensions. The first is uh, whether they seek relationships with other groups, mainly the majority, and whether they attempt to maintain their heritage culture, their cultural background, the culture of their home country. And if they try to both seek new relationships, create new ties with the new society and, the, and other groups living within it while trying to maintain their own cultural background, uh, Barry talks about an integration strategy, that being an integration strategy. If they do not seek to um, maintain their cultural background but seek to create new strong ties and relationship with the new society, he uh, terms that an assimilation strategy, that the strategy is to assimilate. If, they, if their strategy is to maintain their um, cultural background but not seek new relationships and ties with the new country, 
He terms that a separation strategy, that they separate from the new society. And if they neither attempt to maintain their cultural heritage or seek out new ties and new relationships, new networks with the new society, he um, calls that an marginalization strategy. And the kind of strategy that immigrants choose, of course, have something to do with the new context they arrive in, um, the expectations that society have to them, the support society offers them, but, but it might also have to do with uh, kind of group factors as things having to do with the culture that they come with um, and uh, how they feel that um, it might be threatened or somehow incompatible with the culture of um, their new society. But a lot of different factors might in, in the new contact between uh, cultural groups might come to um, define or influence the, the strategy that individuals choose. But just as individuals might have, individual immigrants ha might have a kind of a more or less kind of deliberate uh, or be more or less reflective about the, their integration the acculturation strategy. So societies might have a, a strategy of um, acculturation, perhaps more more thinly, a strategy of how immigrants should integrate into society. So here you might also have a situation where the dominant idea in society, the dominant philosophy is that immigrants should be able to maintain their culture and they should be able to uh, get new strong ties and relationships with the host country. That is a strategy of multiculturalism, according to Barry. And then if you have a society that expects them that they, they shed their old culture and adopt the new culture of the society, that is what uh, Barry terms the melting pot, Might could also term that kind of an assimilation strategy of larger society and the separation strategy of individuals is kind of corresponded to a segregation strategy of larger society and then in the um, finally you might have a society adopting an exclusion strategy where they both want individuals to shed their old culture but they also want them to kind of be separate from the majority culture But the idea is um, that Barry argues that the kind of philosophy that immigrants meet as they arrive in a new country affects the uh, acculturation strategy that they choose and whether or not that strategy is successful. So he has some uh, general propositions that um, general kind of theoretical arguments um, based on this model and also based on empirical research. What um, he argues theoretically is that we should, well, what we should expect to see um, is that if individ uh, individual immigrants adopt a separation strategy, it will result in the fewest 
behavioral changes, while an assimilation strategy will result in most behavioral changes. That is a quite um, on, on a quite unproblematic um, hypothesis or proposition. A second um, theoretical argument is that inconsistencies and conflict between acculturation preferences of dominant groups and non-dominant groups increases acculturative stress. So if you have um, individuals who pursue, individual immigrants who pursue one into uh, acculturation strategy, for example, they uh, pursue uh, integration as a strategy, but you have a society that expects um, them to pursue assimilation as a strategy because the, they have kind of the melting pot strategy that they want immigrants to shed their old culture and adopt the culture of the majority in the country. That will uh, increase acculturative stress if you have these inconsistencies and conflicts between what immigrants prefer in terms of acculturation and what the society expects. Then he argues that if you have very cultural inclusive societies, that is societies who adopt a more a multiculturalist uh, orientation, it will create less acculturative stress uh, and facilitate an integration strategy. <clears throat> and the argument is that uh, most um, immigrants will try, will choose uh, an integration strategy. Um, and, um, and and very few will deliberately choose an assimilation strategy where they shed their, their old culture uh, completely or attempt to. Um, so if you have a society that is very accepting of uh, immigrants maintaining their old culture, it will then create less acculturative stress because that is something most immigrants want to do to some extent at least. And of course, it, it creates a consistency between the a strategy um, that many would like to adopt an integration strategy. Uh, um, um, yeah, so it creates a consistency between the strategy most would like to adopt and the strategy that society uh, would also like immigrants to adopt. So the argument then is uh, that if it's correct that the integration strategy is the least stressful, that it also kind of, it is also in the strategy that will lead to the best psychological and sociocultural outcomes. A final uh, argument or proposition uh, that Barry uh, presents in the article is that psychological problems will often increase soon after contact but then followed by a general uh, decrease over time, while sociocultural adaptation will typically has a, a more linear or be a more linear process. Um, so this is uh, an hypothesis, an argument based on empirical uh, findings um, that psychological problems is something that is that will decrease over time, but that uh, while social or cultural adaptation um, will have a more linear uh, development. Yeah. Okay, so let me turn to the, the final text. 
and I can see that I've spent quite uh, more time talking about the syllabus so far than I kind of expected. Uh, of course, it's because you also got the feedback in the beginning, beginning of um, of this lecture. But I hope you are still with me. So the last text uh, by Krone Snyder uh, is about what they term their comparative integration context theory. So it's a theory that they kind of developed with the second generation in mind. Barry, in his text, um, it is clear that he mostly thinks think about uh, the first generation uh, when he kind of makes his uh, or develops his uh, framework and, and lists his uh, general propositions. Um, but there are some uh, important differences between the first and the second generation in terms of um, the theory developed to explain um, differences in their outcomes. So the big difference is that the second generation are born in the country uh, and had lived uh, their entire lives uh, in the country. So uh, there is kind of there's not this sharp distinction between um, being kind of an insider or outsider to kind of the majority culture. They are part of the, the majority to a certain extent, but they're also part of um, a minority group to a certain extent. Uh, so there's not this kind of clear distinction between insiders and outsiders when it comes to the second generation. So they, as they are born in the country, they go to uh, the same schools, they attend, um, they try to get job on the same labor market, they uh, grow up in the same institutions generally as everyone else who is born in the country. That inevitably shapes the second generation. So they are inevitably shaped very much by both the, the culture of the parents as well as the culture of um, the country they're born in and the local and the national context. That's also the reason why uh, Pennings and Gassam, uh, Gassas Mazzalenas argue that, um, that they are kind of a litmus test for whether integration works because they're actually born in the country. It should work with them. And indeed, one thing that might also be the case for at least some in the second generation is that their ethnic origins or the origins of their ethnic origins of their family may not even be that important to them in terms of how they behave and identify it, uh, behave or identify. Um, at least not to the same extent as it's probably important to um, to their parents. So, uh, cool text by Kuhn Snyder is very much can uh, an um, introduction to uh, some main results from their big ties project, which compared uh, the second generation. Uh, immigrants in um, in 15 cities across Europe. Um, and the theory here is also based on the findings in that project. And what they argued the find is that there are some very large differences uh, between contexts. And uh, some of these differences, which include kind of um, institutional arrangements uh, regarding um, the educational system and the labor market, housing, they talk about uh, they looked into religion, 
and the legislation about all these matters, that this kind of context uh, makes a difference, makes a big difference for how uh, the second generation integrate. And they put a special emphasis on the social and political context and how that affects how the second generation participates in society and the sense of belonging they feel to a larger society. So they argue that it's very important to study how um, national and local institutional arrangements facilitate uh, or hamper uh, societal participation. And it's very important to study how the social and political climate, 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 affects uh, feelings of uh, belonging. Um, so, for example, um, and of course, you can also say that they um, they studied cities for a reason and not countries. And the, the argument uh, that is presented by several people in the literature is that there are often larger differences between cities than there are between countries. Um, and it's often more interesting to um, compare cities, compare local contexts uh, in order to understand why outcomes vary. And that's also what they did uh, in their study here. Uh, and some examples of uh, some institutional arrangements that might be important uh, could be, uh, for example, high minimum wages that we have uh, in the Scandinavian countries, particularly in Denmark, that creates a barrier for low-skilled migrants makes it more difficult for many migrants to find a job. That institutional arrangement, that national institutional arrangement um, might have the effect that in some contexts it's more easy for more easy to find a job and in that way become more socioeconomically integrated than it is in other contexts. In some contexts you might have little support for language training. In some contexts you might have a lot of support um, and that might affect whether or not uh, migrants find it, uh, um, how difficult they find it to adapt uh, and get a job the, because the language is a basic, basic uh, tool in order to adapt to a new society. Um, so that might be an institutional arrangement that kind of uh, um, affects participation. Um, yeah, a third example could be the educational system. So you have in the text they um, introduce you to the so main difference between educational systems in Europe is whether you have a high degree of tracking or not, whether at an early age uh, students are kind of put into different educational tracks in terms of how promising they are in terms of becoming academics or something else. If you have the uh, systems with a high degree of tracking, as you have in uh, Germany and Switzerland, um, you uh, create large educational qualities compared to countries with little tracking as Denmark, Sweden and Norway, where you have fewer educational inequalities between uh, immigrants or ethnic, uh, between minority groups uh, and majority. So these are just some examples of different institutional arrangements that might then facilitate or hamper societal participation. And it's odd to understand the context, the con understand the institutions to understand why these outcomes vary. Um, and now let me turn to kind of the, the second thing they talk about that's, that it's important to study, the social and political climate. 
and it's particularly important to study according to them because it affects the feelings of belonging that immigrants and the children develop. So they uh, distinguish between um, three basic types of discursive contexts. It's um, the political discourse, the social discourse of everyday communication and interaction, and media discourse. And in these different discursive contexts, immigrants might meet uh, very bright or blurred boundaries. So let me just take a moment to uh, explain that uh, concept by uh, Richard Alba, which the text doesn't explain that much. The idea <clears throat> is that in discourse, you might create a very clear boundary between what it means to be part of uh, the majority, what it means to be part of some ethnic group. And if you create very clear boundaries, <clears throat> you also try to make it very clear what defines what it means to be a member of one of the other group and what it means to travel between groups. So why, so how groups um, differ uh, and what differences cannot be taken from one group over to another group. So if you have very clear, bright boundaries, it makes it more difficult to kind of travel freely between different groups and feel a strong sense of belonging in different groups. If you instead have very blurred boundaries where it's not easy to, or it's argued that there are no like clear boundary between what it means to be a member of one uh, ethnic group compared to what it means to be a member of the majority um, and no one can really find out what the difference really is between these groups. That makes it very easy to kind of travel between these groups and function uh, within different groups uh, without feeling very different or, um, yeah, without feeling very different, basically. Yeah. So the idea is that the kind of the social boundaries that are created between uh, groups in, in the discourse in society, in the politics and media and social interaction, uh, affects the ability of immigrants and children to develop and feel a strong sense of belonging. And if you have very blurred boundaries, you create a context where it's, where it's much easier to develop a belonging to different uh, cultural or ethnic groups. Uh, and as they argue uh, in the paper, and I'm going to quote here directly, Depending on the degree to which belonging to the local or national community is discursively called into question, we find ambiguity and hybridity in the feelings of belonging of second-generation groups. So they argue that they find that when uh, you have very bright boundaries, uh, and which are often accompanied by... Um, um, many in society kind of questioning whether they, whether immigrants or descendants actually belong to the majority, actually have uh, changed in a way so they truly belong to the majority or truly is a part of the majority group. When that is a when that happens, you find a lot more uh, ambiguity, um, a lot more um, troubled feelings of belonging. Uh, among the second generation. So the basic idea of the this 
theory here is that the context matters. How we talk about immigrants matters for how they integrate in terms of uh, belonging. And the institutions that we set up are important for how they end up participating in society. All right, we're coming to uh, to an end of this uh, talk. I'm um, going to give a very brief uh, summary here of what I've talked about uh, before presenting the group exercise and ending. So um, we started out talking about integration as a concept. And um, the text by Pennings and Gazas Masarenas argued that integration is a non-linear process that might vary or will vary across integration dimensions and it is an outcome of interaction between minority groups and the majority but an interaction which is conditioned by the context so how people interact is affected by the context that they have to interact within the institutions and discourse that they have to interact within as a result of uh, this interaction and how it is conditioned by the context, you will see change. And this kind of change may occur in individuals, it may occur in groups, in organizations or in institutions. There is a difference, though, between studying integration processes, which is what we focus on in this course, and then studying integration policies. Of course, integration policies might affect integration policies. So if integration policies are part of the context that conditions how uh, groups interact in society. So they c condition and affect the integration processes of immigrants and their children. But you might also study integration policies uh, in terms of the policies that are chosen and how they're implemented. And this is, are different questions that we uh, are less concerned with, with in this course. We are often very interested in comparing to understand why integration outcomes vary and to understand the importance of uh, context and group factors for why outcomes vary. I talked about two different kinds of theory which are not uh, in any way, uh, they're very compatible theories, talk about acculturation theory and comparative integration context theory. So acculturation theory is very much concerned with uh, the changes in behavior, stress, well-being, and how you navigate the majority culture as a result of the contact that takes place between groups in society, between the minority and majority. A main uh, proposition, uh, an argument um, following that theory is that the integration strategy that both trying to maintain um, the, uh, your cultural background, your cultural heritage, but also uh, trying to create strong ties and relationships with um, other groups and people uh, in, in the new society is what uh, for most people will lead to the best outcomes in terms of uh, psychological adaptation and sociocultural adaptation. But that the context conditions the extent to which uh, this strategy is both chosen and will be successful.
comparative integration context theory is more concerned with societal, societal participation and belonging. Societal participation is about whether you participate in uh, the educational system, in the labor market, in politics, in different areas of society, the de degree to which people participate. This is something that the psychological literature is less concerned with. They're more focused on the individuals and the groups and their psychological outcomes. But here, the concern is more with participation, but also belonging, which can also be seen as a, a psychological outcome, as um, a part of well-being. Both perspectives stress the importance of context. And in the many, uh, or in many of the lessons that we will have um, going forward, we will talk about uh, the context differences between Denmark, Sweden, and Norway, and how they affect uh, integration outcomes. We'll talk about citizenship, the political discourse. We'll talk about that next time. We'll talk about schools and the labor market, and try and compare. Um, the differences between Denmark, Sweden, and Norway within these areas, and how they, um, how that seems at least to relate to differences or similarities in integration outcomes. All right, that uh, concludes uh, my talk almost. Because here, uh, in the very end, I would like to um, present you the group exercise that you will do. Uh, for the first 45 minutes um, uh, during class on Friday. So I'm going to read it loud now. So imagine that you are conducting a representative survey of first and second generation immigrants in Denmark and Sweden. You are interested in how the national context affects acculturative stress and feelings of national belonging. Now the first question comes here. Before collecting the data, you write down your theoretical expectations. What differences do you expect to find between Denmark and Sweden? And why do you expect to find those differences? So here you, uh, you need to draw on uh, the theories uh, presented and think about the difference between Denmark and Sweden. Uh, and what that difference means in terms of the uh, kind and levels of acculturative stress uh, and feelings of national belonging that you would expect to find in those different contexts. So that's the first question. The second, after analyzing the data, you find that second generation immigrants show similar high levels of national belonging in both Denmark and Sweden. How might you explain that? So this is perhaps something, a finding that would contradict what you expected. Perhaps some of the answers you gave uh, to question one. So now I would like you to think about, so if you actually found this result where you might have expected that you uh, differences between, because the Danish and Swedish context is so apparently so different, how might you then explain that? Think about what I've talked about today. Uh, I won't give you any more hints for now, um, but I look forward to, um, to uh, hearing some of your 
thoughts and answers uh, to these uh, to these questions and i hope you find uh, the exercise interesting so um to conclude we will uh, meet you will meet with your groups first uh, during the first 45 minutes uh, on friday on the lesson on friday and then in the final 45 minutes the second part of class we will all meet together in the general channel and discuss this exercise um, together. Some of you will present to me your answers. And after we've discussed the exercise, uh, we will have time for a, an open discussion of whatever you would like uh, to discuss. So um, I hope it, uh, it works. Uh, I think we should try to actually have you talk, turn on and off your mics uh, and have you talk and not just use the chat function. Um, but I will try and explain that in detail on Friday and hopefully it will work. I don't think we're not that many, so I think uh, it should be fine. So bye for now and uh, see you on Friday and uh, take care.